Um, but we talked about how, how Acts is a little bit like, um, we can think of it a little bit like um, a TV show where there's season one and season two. And last week was kind of the season finale of season one. And we say that because uh, it's a natural sort of closing point and it's really a turning point in the way that Luke tells his narrative. And so season one, if you will, had Peter kind of at the forefront. And you have Peter standing up on the day of Pentecost and he preaches the gospel and all of this stuff. But the last scene, the season finale of season one was Peter getting locked up by Herod, the king. And it's the showdown between King Herod and King Jesus as represented by Peter and, and the church. And, but then you have uh, Peter being freed by the angel, but then he sort of needs to kind of lay low, and so he disappears for a while. Season two, this is episode one of season two, so like every good TV show, you're kind of thinking, okay, so who's going to step up? You know, this person sort of faded from the scene. Who's the, the, the new leader that kind of comes to the foreground, at least the way Luke is telling the story, is Paul. And we've met Paul a few weeks ago when, when we talked about his conversion. Because what was his name before he was Paul? He was Saul. And he was this, this zealot Pharisee of the Pharisees, you know, zealous for the Lord. And, and, and um, was persecuting the believers, the church, the followers of, of Jesus. Because uh, he thought that they were sort of deviant in their, in their Jewish faith. And so, but Saul then has this radical encounter with Jesus himself, the risen Christ, on his road to Damascus. He gets turned around. And then now what we're about to see is Paul preaching his first sermon. Now, here again, we find ourselves yet another sermon about a sermon, you know. Uh, This is our dream within a dream or inception. This is our church inception moment where a sermon about another sermon. Now, but, but Acts is full of speeches and sermons. I think about a third of the book is made up of these long speeches. But one of the things to pay attention to here is Luke is, is showing us that there's a lot of overlap between Peter's sermon and Paul's sermon. So if you were to, on your own sort of side study this week, look at Acts 2 and Peter's sermon, and then look at Acts uh, 13 and Paul's sermon, you'd say, well, there's a lot of similar points here. It's like these guys were borrowing each other's sermon notes. And that's not because Peter uploaded his notes to sermoncentral.com and Paul downloaded it. You know, that's not because of that. It's, it's because Luke is trying to show us that Paul, as this new leader of the, of the church, as it spreads into the Gentiles, Paul is not preaching another gospel. He's carrying on the same gospel message. In fact, what's controversial, quote unquote, about what Paul does is Paul is saying, look, this is not just a message for Jews, but for Gentiles. And so that's enough of the, you know, that's enough of controversy that Luke's trying to say, but the message he's proclaiming is itself the same as what Peter's been saying all along. So let's pick this up here in Acts 13, verse 26. Brothers, children of Abraham's family and you Gentile God worshipers, the message about this salvation has been sent to us. The people in Jerusalem and their leaders didn't recognize Jesus And by condemning him, they fulfill the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. And even though they didn't find a single legal basis for the death penalty, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they finished doing everything that had been written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. If you are underlining, into underlining your Bible, and I think we all ought to be, or highlighting if you're using a device like this, then underline that phrase, God raised him from the dead. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And he appeared over many days to those who, have tra- who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to the people, and we proclaim to you the good news. What God promised to our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up 
Jesus. Now, this is an interesting thing, because you read over a phrase like that, and you're like, great, you know. But then if you really think about it, you say, wait a minute, where in the Old Testament did God promise that there was going to be a person that he would raise up? Where, why did they connect this with a national hope? Why was this sort of event? Why is Paul saying that because God has raised Jesus from the dead, this is how we know that God has fulfilled his promise? What promise? Which one? Are you serious? Really? This phrase, God raised him from the dead, appears in more or less this form 13 t- 12 times in the book of Acts. 12 times in just the first 13 chapters. It doesn't appear as much in the second half of the book. Nine times before this sermon, three times in this very sermon, God raised him up. And so the question we want to ask ourselves this morning is, what is it about the resurrection of Jesus that makes it good news? Because if we're honest, when you think about how we preach the gospel or proclaim the good news, a lot of what we say has to do with the cross, is it not? So it's the cross, it's the cross, and no doubt it's about the cross. But sometimes we, we talk so much about what's well, the cross and it's, it's, it's Jesus died, Jesus died, Jesus died, that we forget that the emphasis point for all of these sermons of these first preachers was, but God raised him up, God raised him up, God raised him up 12 times. Now, why? When I was growing up in kind of a Christian environment, I sort of always thought of the resurrection as like the bonus, you know? It was like, Jesus died from our, our sins, and then he couldn't stay dead, you know? Like there's a popular Christian song that says, well, you just can't keep a good man down, you know? And we sort of think, well, that, is that what the resurrection is, that you just can't keep a good man down? It's Jesus kind of saying, not only did I die for their sins, but here's a party trick that you're going to be talking about for a couple of millennia, you know? <laughs> or sometimes we think of the resurrection as sort of proof of Jesus' divinity, as if like, he did the miracle that nobody else could do, and so, bzam, everybody says, ooh. I mean, is that what the resurrection is? Most of the time, we, we, if we were to preach, we wouldn't preach like Paul did, where the centerpiece of his gospel proclamation is, but God raised him up. Why is resurrection such good news? This morning, we're going to explore that in three parts. And the first is this. I'm going, to, I'm going to show you this phrase even before we get to the list of three. And this is one of those phrases that you'll write down in your journal or your Bible page or whatever. And you say, I'm going to chew on this for weeks and months. And I hope you do. But the phrase is this. The resurrection of the Messiah, kind of in Jewish thought and poems and songs and prophecies, means at least two things. A vindication of Jesus as the suffering servant and the validation of Jesus as the true king not just of Israel, but of the whole world. Now this is, I promise you, this could be a sermon series in and of itself, so I'm going to have to restrain myself from, from doing it, but let's just say a little bit about it. Isaiah says a lot about this character, this suffering servant's figure. Isaiah 40 through 55, particularly Isaiah 53. Daniel 7 says something similar to this. Basically, there's going to be this figure that, that they were hoping for that would be the chosen one, but he would kind of represent in himself the whole plight of Israel. He would carry in himself their whole unlucky story of being chosen and yet being beaten down. And so Daniel 7 talks about this one kind of being killed, being, being, um, being brought to judgment by the nations of the world, by the empires, and then God vindicating this one by making him rise. So there's a very real sense that Paul would develop his theology about this later on as we'd see in his other letters, but there's something very real about this where Paul is saying, look, When I say God kept his promise, what I'm saying is 
In Jesus is the whole story of Israel. The story of a people who've been pushed down and who are now being vindicated. It's a story of a people who were unfaithful, summed up in the life of a servant who was faithful. And so there's a kind of vindication. But it's also about kingship. This chosen one, this Messiah, this, it's just, that phrase Messiah just means the anointed one, the chosen one. And that's a way of God saying, okay, look, there is going to be this one that is anointed that will win a great victory. And when he does, he will become the great king. Now, who in the Old Testament does that sound like? David won a great victory, later became the great king, which is why Messiah is also called the son of David. Okay, these are phrases that were like, I kind of heard that phrase. It doesn't mean much to us, but if you were a Jewish kid being nourished on these stories and these poems and these prayers, you knew what this meant. So when Paul says, look, he's raised from the... It's a way of saying the suffering servant has been vindicated and God's true king has been validated. This is it. Kingdom has come. It's coming. So, all right. Well, thanks, Glenn. That's more than we can kind of wrestle with on a Sunday morning. But really, what does the resurrection of Jesus mean for the world? Why is it good news? Number one, it means that death has been defeated. It means that death has been defeated. Listen to this verse here in verse 34. God raised Jesus from the dead, never again to be subjected to death's decay. Therefore, God said, I will give to you the holy and firm promise I made to David. In another place, it is said, you will not let your holy one experience death's decay. And this is a a kind of what people used to think applied to David. But then Paul says, but David served God's purposes in his own generation. And then he died and was buried with his ancestors. And he experienced, guess what? Death's decay. But the one whom God raised up didn't experience death's decay. If we were to do a little spiritual exercise this morning, so get out a sheet of paper and begin to write down the things you're afraid of. You might start by saying public speaking, you know. But then, then, then you say maybe, you know, spiders, snakes, Matt Howard. Uh, but then after a while, you, things would start to get real. And you'd, you would write down things that are maybe more in your heart. You know, honestly, I'm afraid of this happening or, or, or this happening. And, and really, if you were to boil it down, probably most of us would say, you know, in the end, I'm afraid of losing something that I'll never get back. Or in the words of that Coldplay song, you lose something that you just can't replace. Right? And, and for most of us, that word is death. That all of a sudden, death happens, and you say, well, gosh, how do we... How do we get that back? How do we undo that? Sometimes when we talk about hope for the Christian, we make the um, mistake of talking about hope as heaven. And so we say, well, Jesus is risen from the dead, so we can all go to heaven. That's true, but the good news is actually better than that. There's a book that my girls love to read. It's called The Big Green Pocket Book. And the story goes something like this. This girl goes with her mom to run some errands, and she carries with her a big green purse. And at every place that she stops for errands, they give her a little something. So she goes to the bank with her mom, and the, the teller gives her a little, you know, sucker, and she puts it in her purse. And, and she goes to the laundromat, the laundromat gives her a little calendar, and she puts it in, you know. And she goes to this other place, and then they give her a magnet, she puts the magnet in her purse. And, and they're riding the bus home, and, and they ride the bus home, and she leaves her big green pocketbook on the bus. And she gets in the house and she says, Mom, I left my big green pocketbook on the bus. 
And her mom says, don't worry, don't worry. I've got a brown straw purse for you to play with. And she says a line that I think is very profound for a children's book. She says, I don't want the brown purse. My whole day was in that green pocketbook. Think about that. Oh, I'm so sorry. Life's been bad here. But don't worry. God's going to give us heaven where there's streets of gold and all of this stuff. And if we're truly honest with ourselves, as Christians struggle to be, we would say, you know what? I don't know if I want that. My whole life was in this world. My whole life was in with this person and that person. Some of you know what it's like to sit at a funeral and feel like, yeah, heaven's pretty great, but death is pretty lousy. And it's not that I don't like heaven, it's just that I just wish this could be undone. I just wish death could be undone. And what I want to tell you is the gospel, when Paul starts to say that Jesus did not see decay, Paul later develops this idea quite a bit. In a letter he wrote to the church in Corinth, we call it 1 Corinthians. And when you read 1 Corinthians 15, Paul has this amazing line in there. He says, listen, the time will come when Jesus will return. And when Jesus returns, he must reign until all things are put under his feet. And the last enemy to be defeated is death. And all of a sudden, in that little phrase, the last enemy to be defeated is death, there's something validating to us because it says, you know what? You don't have to call death God's angel. You don't have to call death this wonderful thing, and he just, he just called him home, and somewhere in us we're saying, Arr! you can call death an enemy because Paul does. Paul does. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He says, it's true. Death is the enemy, but it's the last enemy that God will defeat. Think about the big green pocketbook. She doesn't want another purse. Her whole life was in that purse. What we sometimes think of hope, or the hope of the gospel, is really something that kind of looks like compensation, right? It's as if God were to say to us, man, I'm so sorry, Jim, that that happened. Boy, that's a real bummer. Those were some tough years, the all 120 of those years on earth. Uh, what, you know, but, but hey, here's something better for you, right? And we view hope, the hope of the gospel, as compensation, but it's not compensation, I meet every week with a dear friend who's struggling with an unimaginable loss. And every week we talk about this one question. He says, Glenn, how is God going to make this up to me? And every week we say, you know what? He's not going to make this up to you. He's going to make that come alive again. Resurrection is better than compensation. Resurrection is not compensation. Resurrection is taking that which was lost and making it come alive again in a totally new way. The point that Paul makes when he says Jesus' body did not see decay, why is that so significant? Because it's not as if Jesus died and then one body started rotting and God said, okay, well, let me give you a new one. This is better. This is 2.0. This is like the new Iron Man suit. You know, like this is even better. And we think that, isn't it? We think that, well, this one will kind of give in and then God will get... Instead of thinking, what happened to Jesus' body? That same body got transformed and made into something new. Resurrection is God taking that very thing, that very physical thing that was lost, that, was, that died, that, that, and, and puts it back together and makes it living in a way it could never have been before. 
That's better than compensation. That's better than, this is going to sound funny, but that's better than heaven. And that's what Paul talks about. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, look, yes, we go to this place, and yes, we're waiting up in heaven, but you know what? There's coming a day where Jesus returns, and he defeats the enemy of death. He doesn't evacuate us from a world of death. He defeats death. And then John fills in the rest of the picture in Revelation 21 and says, and then Jesus will make this world new again, new heavens, new earth. So wait a minute. You're saying that the resurrection of Jesus is actually good news for the whole cosmos? Yes. Yes. I love the way N.C. Wright says it. He says, look, one day God will do for the whole cosmos what he did for Jesus of Nazareth. Resurrection. Resurrection. Resurrection is better than compensation. Resurrection is better than evacuation, being airlifted out of earth and flying away to heaven. That's not Christianity. That's Plato. It's, it's Greek philosophy that said the spiritual is better than the physical and the material and we need to escape the material. Or some version of it, the Stoics would say, well, then the material doesn't matter, so whatever. Well, the Epicureans who decided to party because it doesn't matter, you know. Sto- one was Stoic, one was Epicurean. It's a, it's a funny sort of road. But the Christians into this world said, you know what? The resurrection of Jesus means physical things one day will be rescued, reconstituted, and given a new kind of life. The gospel is good news on a cosmic level. It's cosmic good news. It's remarkable. If you've ever been on the playground and you were bullied as a kid, which I don't know anything about that, but I imagine it would be tough. Um, it's not true. Um, if you ever were bullied on the playground and your dad comes to rescue you and you jump in the car and you drive away, Leaving the scene of the fight and going home is not winning, right? That's not victory. You can't go home and say, Mom, a bully picked on me, but I won. What do you mean you won? Did you hit him back? No, I jumped in the car and went home with Dad. And your sweet mother will say, Oh, sweet son, I love you. It's okay. You didn't win. What does it mean to say... That the resurrection of Jesus means a victory over death. It surely doesn't mean that we just go away to heaven. That's not victory. That's evacuation. That's escape. That's not victory. Victory is when Jesus returns to the earth and says, All right, where are you at? Cancer, where are you? Death, where are you? Abuse, where are you? I'm going to reign until it's all defeated, and set right. That's amazing. That's not Jesus saying, whoo, things were kind of tough down here. Well, let's come back to my place. I have air conditioning. This is Jesus saying, let's go kick some booty. Where's death? Where's the enemy? Let's go. I will finish what I began. In fact, what Paul begins to make this connection by the time he's writing to the Corinthians, we see in his sermon in Acts 13, the, seeds, the seed forms of this, but by the time he writes 1 Corinthians, what he says, Paul says it this way, he says, look, if Jesus' resurrection didn't happen, then we of all people are to be pitied. 
Because then we've all been playing the fool. I've been wasting my time. We'd have no hope. If it was just for a little bit of encouragement while on this life, then it means nothing. But he goes on through this magnificent chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 and says, look, because God raised Jesus from the dead, that means when Jesus returns, death will be fully and finally defeated and all will be right. That's amazing. And actually, you could say that, that the future defeat of death is secured because of Jesus' defeat of death on Easter. All of a sudden, when you see it that way, resurrection is not just gravy. It's not just bonus. It is the good news. You can see why these first preachers over and over again said, but God raised him from the dead. It means, my friends, that this is not the end. That whatever the fight you're in, it's not the end. That it means that even if death seems to win, it will not have the last word. It means that in the end, Jesus wins. And all who are with him win as well. To kind of let this soak in, we're going to sing about it. And now movement two. Paul goes on and he says, well, that's not all the resurrection of Jesus means for the world. In fact... (laughs) We've seen the cosmic dimension of this. Skip with me toward the end of the chapter and see the social dimension of this. Death has been defeated. The barriers are broken. In verse 42, we kind of see this in the way Paul lives. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people urged them to speak about these things again on the next Sabbath. And when the people of the synagogue were dismissed, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism accompanied Paul and Barnabas who urged them to remain faithful to the message of God's grace. On the next Sabbath, almost everyone in the city gathered to hear the Lord's word. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were overcome with jealousy because they sort of thought, well, wait a minute, it's us, right? It's for us. Who are all these other people? You ever had that feeling? You showed up in church and all of a sudden you're like, well, who are all of these other people? It's for us. They argued against what Paul was saying by slandering him, but speaking courageously, Paul and Barnabas said, we had to speak God's word to you first, but oh, since you rejected it and show that you were unworthy to receive eternal life, we will turn to the Gentiles. And this is what the Lord has commanded us. I've made you a light for the Gentiles so you could bring salvation to the end of the earth. Paul again quoting Isaiah. And when the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and honored the Lord's word. Everyone who was appointed for eternal life believed, and the Lord's word was broadcast throughout the region. Barriers continue to be broken down. We've talked about this over and over again in the book of Acts because we keep being confronted by this. Ooh, what's going to happen when an Ethiopian eunuch wants to receive Christ? He's got a couple, you know, sort of check marks against him. Well, what about what happens when, a, when Samaria, when Philip goes to Samaria? Are they going to receive the good news? Yep. What about a Roman centurion named Cornelius? Surely not him. Oh, yes, him. What about Saul, the guy who was breathing murderous threats on his way to kill him? Yes, him too. So wait a minute. Wait a minute. I, I'm a little uncomfortable with this because I thought like Christians were good people, you know? And I'm a good person. I've sort of lived a good life. Like, I'm not sure. If we start letting in these riffraffs, who knows what's going to happen to church? And we somehow, maybe the longer we've been with Jesus, we sort of start this 
idea in our heads that we kind of deserved this. I go, well, I mean, we weren't, you know, we were sort of worth saving. You know, I mean, Jesus, good investment by saving me, you know. I'm going to yield a lot of fruit for your kingdom. Uh, okay. But then we sort of look at someone else and say, that's a kind of a risky venture there, Lord, you know. We don't know how that one's going to turn out. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago we said, look, the gospel is not about going from bad to good, but from dead to alive. So the issue is not degrees of badness, now being modified by the right techniques into goodness. The issue is deadness that has now been made alive. And Paul, he, he understands this. He knows, look, if God raised Jesus from the dead, it means he wants to bring everyone to life again in their hearts. And there's no keeping people out of this. There's no stopping it. See, the trouble, we do what Peter did a couple weeks back, Acts 10. Peter had kind of said, look, I've been perfect. I, I've never broken the Jewish dietary food law. I am good. And sometimes we kind, of, we kind of make these things up as ways of justifying ourselves, right? Oh, well, I've never done that, and I've never done this. And so these things become a way of kind of patting ourselves on the back or justifying ourselves. But you know what the, the other side of that is? Guess what happens every time you lift up a certain thing and say, well, I've never done that. I, I'm, I'm better than that. Guess what you've done is you've all of a sudden built up this little barrier that says, and all who have will never be as good as me. And Jesus is saying, so the one who's never eaten pork and the one who's eaten pork like it was going out of style are all going to be saved in. If they call on Jesus, you get to be brought into the family. And maybe some of, some of you know what it's like to be on the other side of it, to feel like, you know what, I've been in a lot of churches, but I've always felt like second class. I've always felt like I had the seat that was in the back of the airplane by the restroom, you know, and the seat doesn't recline. It's the worst. <laughs> but everyone else, they're kind of getting, you know, warm towels and a glass of, you know, orange juice or whatever. And you kind of feel like this division. What my prayer is for even us as a New Life Downtown congregation is we really begin to believe that Jesus cuts across those barriers. And sometimes those barriers may be national lines, sometimes they're ethnic lines, sometimes they're, they're different than that. Sometimes it's, it's about your past. It's about, well, that, he's a little more checkered, or he's a little more stained. Or she, you know, instead of saying, does Jesus' resurrection mean something, or doesn't it? Does it bring dead people back to life, or does it not? And if we say it does, then all of a sudden, let the pork-eating Gentile and the pork-abstaining Jew call each other brother and sister in Christ. Now, this is very, very different from the notion in our culture of tolerance. We have this idea that everybody's, you know, all sort of get along and just pretend that we don't have differences, which is a dangerous way to sort of think about it. We do have differences, and our differences do matter. But, and I think you could have a whole separate sermon or series, really, on what is called political theology, which is how do we act in the public square. And for better or for worse, we live in a society that's pluralistic. There's multiple faiths, multiple viewpoints, and multiple values. And so there's something very real about saying, how do, how do we live in this world to do unto others as I would have them do unto me? What does that mean? How do we work for the common good and human flourishing? Those are wonderful conversations, but I leave those to, to, to those who are better than me and smarter than me. I, I'm not going to touch it today. 
what I want to say is this unity, this breaking across boundaries that the gospel does is something that happens within the church. I'm, I, it means something for us when, when someone comes to Jesus. We're not saying, okay, ah, let's just sort of ignore things. What we are saying is the most important thing about you is Jesus. The most important thing about your life is not your past or your this or your that or how you vote. or The, the most important thing about you is Jesus. That's a remarkable place to come to, to say, wow. Now, a couple times a month, we say the Nicene Creed together. The creed was kind of written in the 300s, 325, and then tweaked a little bit in 381, kind of for, you know, set. But this creed, really, was, they had, the phrases of it developed in the early, earlier centuries than that. And they're in there in Corinthians, uh, when, 1 Corinthians 15, actually. They're in there in other sections of it. But one of the reasons I love the creed is because it helps us say, wait a minute, these are the things we hold with a closed hand, and that all who affirm this, all who believe in the Father, we're in the family together then, one holy worldwide church, or actually the phrase of the creed, one holy apostolic Catholic church. I knew if I used that word, there might be riots in here. And that's kind of a sad commentary on even our own prejudice about other brothers and sisters. Where for a long time, many decades, Protestants sort of looked at Catholics and said, or, you know, people who say even sort of mindlessly, yeah, I, you know, I'm really hoping to witness to my coworkers. I mean, they're not saved. I mean, they're, they're Catholic, but, you know. Right? How do you know? Does the family of God mean something or does it not? So the creed kind of reminds us that, look, everyone who holds to this truly with faith in their hearts is in the family. And may I not be the one to judge and say who really meant it and who didn't really mean it, right? But there's enough in the creed that actually keeps a lot of other things, excludes a lot of other things. We could, we could list it. I mean, the, the, the Mormons could not affirm the Nicene Creed. J-dubs could, you know, you could go down this list and say there's, there's things about the creed that, are, that would be troubling to other things, but classic Orthodox Christian faith, you find it in the Nicene Creed. We hold that with a closed hand, and then we hold everything else with this open hand. You say, well, let's, let's talk about it through, through, through the Scripture and through history, and let's, let's talk about it. And you can have differences so long as you remember that what unites us as the people of God is stronger than what divides us as the people of God. Right? So Paul gets this. The gospel is good news, not just in a cosmic way, but in a social way. It breaks down barriers and pulls it together. That's why we can say we believe in one holy apostolic Catholic, small c. It's the Latin word for worldwide. So I translated it for you. One holy apostolic worldwide church. We're all part of it together. There's a phrase in the creed that says, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. I am struck by how often in the creeds and in the old prayers, going all the way back to the Lord's Prayer, you will never find a single personal pronoun in a singular form. If you're like, maybe grammar, I didn't, I didn't pay attention to grammar. What that means is you'll, you won't find an I, me, or my. It's we, us, and our. Give us this day, our daily bread. Forgive us, right? Even in the creed, for us and for our salvation. It means when you think about the gospel and its transforming power, you don't think about little it, it, me and my life and I'm going to heaven and I hope she doesn't come. 
But you recognize that when God saves us, He saves us into a family. Even our physical families are a picture of that. It requires a mother and a father to give, uh, to produce life. And it's by design so that a life can be entered into a family and this family can raise a child. Everything about the design speaks to us about this. It's not an accident that God, that Jesus uses birth as this picture about our own salvation. We're born again. We say that. But when did we think born again meant born again without a family? Instead of realizing I've been born again into the family of God. And like it or not, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Protestant, denominational, non-denominational, it's all on the spectrum, but they're all your cousins and crazy uncles and whatever. They're all, we're all in this family together for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. I wrote a song on this phrase with my good friend John Egan who popped in actually at the 9 o'clock this morning. But I want us to stand and worship together as we sing this to think about the ways that God has saved, not just saved me, but saved us together as a people. And now the third and final movement. Why is the resurrection of Jesus good news for the world? It's good news in a cosmic sense, death is defeated. It's good news in a horizontal social sense, barriers are broken down, a new people are being formed in Christ. But the most beautiful piece of it, in the personal sense, sins are now forgiven. Sins are now forgiven. This is actually the point that Paul hinges from the resurrection. In verse 37, he goes right to this in verse 38. Therefore... He said all this thing about Jesus not being allowed to see decay and all of that, but then he says, okay, all right, therefore, brothers and sisters, know this. Through Jesus we proclaim forgiveness of sins to you for all those sins from which you couldn't be put in right relationship with God through Moses' law, through Jesus, everyone who believes is put in right relationship with God. Wow. Somebody say hallelujah, right? I mean, this is like as good as it gets. You think about the things that we suffer from and the guilt that plagues us. What is it that can wash it? What is it that can remove it? What is it that can say, I see that there's brokenness in your heart. I see that that really comes from a brokenness in your relationship with God. And I'm putting that back together. And Paul's saying, look, all of the laws of Moses were wonderful in teaching you how to live as the people of God, but they couldn't do anything for you when you were unfaithful as the people of God. Now, let's be clear, the role of the law was never to make them the people of God. No, they became the people of God just because God chose them. But the law was how they were supposed to live it out. It's kind of like a, a, a man and a woman, when, when a man uh, proposes to a young woman, he says, will you be my bride? In, in some ways, you could say he's chosen her. It, it's an act of love. And she says, yes. But then they make these vows in sickness and in health and good days and bad days, all this stuff, and they make these vows. And it's a way of saying, look, this is how we're now going to live as a covenant husband and wife. But every married person in the room knows It doesn't take long before one person lets the other down. The Old Testament used marriage as a 
metaphor for Israel and God. And they said this, Yahweh made covenant with you, but you have played the harlot with Yahweh. You've been so unfaithful. And in all of their ancient hopes through Isaiah and all the prophets, they would wait. They would say, one day in the age to come, one day Yahweh will forgive our sins and set us back right with Him. They knew we know the law, but we just can't live faithful enough to it. And Paul is saying, look, look, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, that's God's announcement to the world that that age to come has come. Forgiveness freely flows. And the surprising twist, but not just to Israel, but to the whole personal. You and me. All of a sudden it becomes personal. The famous painting of the Mona Lisa, when you look at it, you think, you look at that whole picture and you think, that's a beautiful piece of artwork. But if I were to ask you, what really is the most mystifying, beautiful thing of the whole painting? What is the part of the painting that everybody talks about? What is it? The smile. There it is. In some ways, it's like saying, what's the most beautiful thing about the gospel? It's the forgiveness of sins. It's that you can be set right with God. But the trouble is, if all we see is this, it's hard to catch the beauty of the whole painting, isn't it? The smile is beautiful because we see the rest of her face. If this was da Vinci's painting, the the one with the lips, I don't know what we would say of it. Maybe we wouldn't have been talking about it, but we have this. And it allows us to kind of take in the landscape and the water and the colors and the light and then to say, my goodness, there's something about that smile. And in the same way, when someone says, what is the gospel? Why is the resurrection of Jesus good news? You could say, you know what? It means death will be defeated. It means the world will be remade. It means God is not abandoning his creation. It means death is, there's cosmic good news. And someone's saying, Wow. And then you say, but it also is social good news. It means that for anyone who's Christ, you know, you want unity. Society will never get unity because there's not Jesus at the center of it. But when Jesus is the center of a community, all of a sudden there's true unity. I'm like, wow, that's, you're getting warmer. That's good. And then you say, but you know what? The most breathtaking, beautiful thing about the gospel is the smile. Is the fact that God looks at us and says, your sins are forgiven. And we say, wow, thank God, right? Thank God. 